privilege to come here with you all and learn through the Word of God. My name is Daryl May. I'm on staff with Legacy um, in our college ministry department, so I work on staff with college, uh, Campus Outreach, Knoxville. Um, so I'm really excited to be here, see you all this morning. Yeah, exactly. So something happened to me the other day that brings joy to the hearts of every man, woman, and child. I reached into my pocket, I pulled out of my pocket a $5 bill. I was so excited, but it made me start thinking, why is it only singles, or why is it only $5 bills that we find in our pockets? Why can't it be like a 50? Why can't it be a 100? Or I don't know if they make bills bigger than 100s, but why can't it be one of those? But I want you all to take a second, turn, find somebody you don't know, or somebody you do know, either one works, but ask the question, if you found a $100 bill in your pocket right now, what would you do with it? So, go meet one another. Right. Well, if y'all want to start making your way back to your seats, we'll go ahead and get started this morning. All right, so turn with me, if you would, in your Bible or on your device or turn your attention to the screen. We're going to be going through Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6 this morning. So um, if this is your first time with us in a little while, our church has been going through this series called Quorum Deo and exploring what does it look like for us to live life as if in the face of God. And to do so, we've been walking step by step through the book of Ephesians. And it's been an incredible time. And this morning, we're going to pick up in chapter 4. So read with me. Ephesians 4 verse 1 says, I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord, 
urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let me pray for our time quick. Father, God, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers um, and explore your word. Father, I pray that through the next um, little while that you would speak to us through your word and give us a picture of what it looks like to live in unity with one another, connected by the gospel in our own differences, but ultimately that we would live for your glory and your name to be known. Father, speak through me this morning. I pray that the church would be encouraged and all those good things. Father, I ask these things in your name. Amen. So how many of you are familiar with a television program called Parks and Recreation. Yes, Dawes is apparently a huge fan of it. Yeah, I am a huge fan of it as well. My wife and I, Sarah, we've watched the, the whole series, not just a season, but the entire series, multiple times on Netflix, which, if you're curious, go check it out. Skip season one. It's not worth it. Start in season two and work your way back from there. But uh, I love how pointed a lot of the things in Parks and Rec are when they just talk about cultural things. And one of the more interesting episodes to me was when two characters, Donna and Tom, made a day for themselves called Treat Yourself Day. Yeah, it's a big deal. I mean, for the entire episode, these two characters go out and they say, you know what? I've been working hard which is ironic because Tom never worked hard, but he had the idea that he deserved things because he worked hard. But they said, I've been working hard, and because of that, we're going to treat ourselves today. So they go through, and they spend an ex exorbitant amount of money on massages. They have a spa day. They go out and spend a ridiculous amount of money on clothes and food. I think at one point they get cupcakes that are like 8 or $9 a piece. It's just kind of ridiculous. It better be a good cupcake if you're spending $9 on it, but that's a completely different thing. One of the characters even spends $2,000 on a like full Dark Knight Batman costume because he looked at it and he's like, you know what? I'm going to treat myself. And if that's something that as I'm explaining this, you're starting to listen a little bit more and think, ooh, I like that. That sounds like a good day. I want to take part in something like that. Well, good news. Some of the more... Devoted fans to Parks and Recreation have created an entire day. So mark your calendars for October 11th, 2018, Treat Yourself Day. <laughs> but the more I started thinking about this concept of Treat Yourself Day, I was a little confused. Because to me, and in my own life, it seems like every day is Treat Yourself Day. Like, I don't need one day set aside for me to think, I'm going to treat myself, because I do that all the time. I get home from work. I'm like, you know what? I worked kind of hard today. I deserve to sit in front of the TV and watch Netflix and enjoy Parks and Rec for the next four hours. Or, okay, three hours. Don't judge me. But also random things like I deserve to have this extra bowl of ice cream because my dog's toy went under the couch and I had to do a push-up to get it out from under there. So I deserve a lot of these things, and these are day-to-day -day things, but I even notice it in a little bit different sense, like if I'm late to a meeting, 
in our office or I'm late to church or something. You know what? I deserve to cut that person off on the interstate. I deserve to break the speed limit because, well, I'm late. I have an appointment. This is a big deal for me. And it kind of sounds ridiculous whenever we get into it. And we're, we're talking about people spending $2,000 on a Batman costume. But the heart of this is what I, I want to talk about this morning because it sounds ridiculous, but these attitudes are all focused around a me-first mentality, you know? I mean, to go out and spend two grand on a Batman costume, you really have to be thinking about no one other than yourself. But these attitudes aren't just prevalent in our day today. They were also prevalent in the church of Ephesus. So Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians. And the city of Ephesus back in the day was one of the biggest cities, huge in trade, huge in commerce. And a lot of those same me-first ideals were working their way into the church. And Paul is addressing a lot of these things. So to give a little background and some context, the first three chapters of Ephesians were the first half. So this book is broken up into two halves, chapters 1 through 3 and 4 through 6. And in chapters 1 through 3, we see Paul, who is the author, he's unfolding the gospel story. He's explaining to us the eternal purposes of God, this incredible mystery that has been explained and looked forward to through the entire Old Testament, and it's being worked out in history right now through the person of Christ. Through Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection, we see that God is creating a new reality, an alienated humanity becoming reconciled, a fractured humanity being united, and ultimately a new humanity being created because of the gospel. And then these two things are linked by the word therefore in chapter 4, verse 1. And in chapter 4, it starts by moving from unveiling this new reality to explaining how this gospel story that we just unpacked should affect every part of our own life story, how it affects us personally in our neighborhoods, our communities, and ultimately in our families and one another, and as a church body as a whole. So to walk through this, this passage begins with Paul reminding them for the second time that he is a prisoner of and a prisoner for Jesus. And this is really important to look at because it gives weight and it gives validity and it gives credibility to the next three chapters that we go through. So it's not just some random guy off the street saying, hey, y'all need to do this better, but a man who is so passionate and has such a conviction for the gospel of Jesus Christ to go forth and the church to be unified, that he's placed under house arrest, he's imprisoned in Rome, and now he is writing to this church and charging them. So this charge, this exhortation, and the validity of who he is as an apostle of Christ undergird everything that we see for the next few chapters. And especially the first thing that we're charged to. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Which brings up a great question is, what do you mean, Paul? What is this calling to which we've been called? Well, if we piece together the first three chapters, the New Testament, and really just the Bible as a whole, we see that there's two parts to this calling as God's people. We see, number one, we're being called to a holy people, set apart, distinct from the outside world. We're set apart to belong to God, ultimately. And number two, we're called to be one people. We're composed equally of 
well, in this time, Jews and Gentiles. We saw that in chapter 1 when Paul is ex- uh, beginning to explain a lot of these things. He says, we Jews and you Gentiles. And I know that Luke mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but this was a huge deal back in the day. Because we have seen no other racial divide and tension and altercation as the issues between the Jewish people and the Gentile people, which is amazing because he then says, walk in a manner worthy of which you've been called and maintain unity with one another. So that's a big deal that he's starting this section off telling them that you were once a very divided people, but now, because of the gospel, you're together, you're one. The gospel affects both of you. So this passage shows us how Paul is charging this church composed equally of Jews and Gentiles to eagerly maintain unity amongst themselves as shown by the Trinity. And ultimately, this is how God created us. If we go back to the garden, we see that God created Adam and Eve to live in perfect unity together and as a whole with God So before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve walked in perfect unity, both together and with God. And Paul calls the Ephesian church to walk in unity as well and uses this kind of as an example. He charges them to walk in humility and in gentleness and in patience. And just for a second, you don't have to close your eyes or anything, but imagine with me a body of believers that is walking in these three things. Imagine if we were gentle with one another. What would it look like if we were kind, if we were tender, were mild-mannered with one another, if we accepted and tolerated delay and trouble and suffering without getting angry or upset, or if we considered others, if we considered the people in our church, in our community group, in our families as more valuable and important than ourselves. That would be such an incredible picture of the love of Christ and the gospel and ultimately give us the ability to bear with one another in love as we live this life out to know Christ and make him known. However, if we look back at the garden, we see a slight problem with that because sin entered the world when Satan tempted Adam and he tempted Eve to become like God. Adam elevated himself. He decreased God and he increased himself for his own glory. He didn't rightly see God's glory as it should be seen. And because of that, he turned away from the glory of God. And he said, you know what? I'm going to take what I think is mine and try to exalt himself, glorify himself, and make himself on a level playing field with God. So the issue is that the unity with God has been broken. Not only with God, but it was the unity with Eve was broken as well. I mean, all of mankind's unity is broken because of this simple act of trying to glorify himself. And therefore, this me-first tendency that we see and this desire to glorify ourselves over one another is, and ultimately over God, it's in our DNA as humans because of this act in the garden. And because of this DNA, because of this sin, we see that, and we aren't gentle. We aren't. We assert our own desires over the good of other people. We put us in a position where we are going to get the thing that we want. Our emotions, they aren't under control. We lash out at people. We we subtweet people. We kind of be passive-aggressive. We do all that stuff. We aren't patient. We don't have the capacity to tolerate delay. 
We don't have the capacity to endure through suffering or trouble without getting angry or upset at whatever it is that's causing that. And we aren't humble. It's interesting. One of the uh, commentators on Ephesians noted that, interestingly, the term humility was uncommon in first century Greek literature. When it did appear, it was used in a very negative connotation. Pride was more highly valued. Christians were ridiculed for their humility. And then he goes on to say, we live in a similar day. The opposite of humility is self-exaltation, and our culture says, exalt yourself, pamper yourself, and think about yourself first. And I'm not sure if Tony Merida was a Parks and Rec fan, but if he was, he would probably put treat yourself in there as well. And we see all of these things. They weren't unique to the church at Ephesus, but they're happening amongst us right now. And all of these things, this lack of gentleness, this lack of um, patience and unity, winds its way back to the sin of pride and self-centeredness, which that root is that God isn't glorious to us. I'm prideful, I'm self-centered, because God's glory is not enough for me so that I have to be glorious. And this means I have to exalt myself above the person next to me, because how can I be glorious if the person next to me is more glorious than me? See, it doesn't work. So we're constantly exalting ourselves. We're constantly seeking our own desires over those of others. We're not so eager to maintain unity, as Paul called us to. And our endurance, when we actually are unified, is really low. Our natural bent is to maintain our individualism, to look out for ourselves, and ultimately just leave other people in the dust. And ultimately, these things are at the root of so many problems that prevent us from being in unity with one another as a church, as Paul calls us to in this passage. I mean, how many churches have been split because of Random things like, I don't like the color of the carpet, or this person said something in a sermon that I didn't necessarily agree with, and I feel like it was pointed towards me, or they took the parking spot that I wanted to be in. It sounds kind of ridiculous, but if you look through church history, a lot of the issues that arise come out of pride and self-centeredness. I mean, think about it in our own context. We have a, well, we don't necessarily have a division, but there is division between people who don't look like us. Look at them and think, man, that person's old, I don't want to talk to them. That person's young, I don't want to talk to them. Even in conversation, we're talking to one another. But are we really listening to one another, or are we just waiting for our turn to speak? Or somebody says something, and the entire 45 seconds that they're talking past that, I'm just thinking of a response. I don't know what they're saying, but I'm trying to think, well, how am I going to interject myself into this conversation? Or we avoid people that we don't feel like we need to get to know in the church, or even that we don't want to know. Like, that person looks different than me. They act different than me. They have a different value system to me. I don't like comic books. Therefore, they like comic books. I don't want to get to know them. And it just goes on like that. We let petty divisions and superficial differences deter this deeper sense of unity. And we have low patience with people who are relationally or spiritually immature. We also have low patience with our family because either they're late or they are too early. One of the differences. But we have a tendency to defend ourselves through these things. I know that as I was working through this summary or this sermon, I was starting to think like, yeah, I mean, that sounds good, but that, that, that's that guy over there. That's not me. I don't exemplify those things. I'm friendly to people on Sunday morning and in the church body. I'm friendly to people at a community group. I'll shake their hand. 
Sometimes I'll even hold eye contact with them for more than about three seconds in conversation. We're doing good. But the issue is that that fix isn't really fixing things, you know? A lot of times we realize that our fix for this sense of disunity is to just put ourselves in the location of unity, but not actually in the spirit of unity. Our attempts to fix this without the gospel look like half measures. We're in community, but very lightly. Light enough just to keep ourselves above others. We tell people, like, the small sins we struggle with, but not really the big ones. We sometimes go hang out with people whenever we're supposed to and whenever it benefits us, but not all the time. We hold ourselves back from intimacy and fellowship with one another. We put on a good version of ourselves, show up to Sunday morning, and just check it off the list, show up to a community group. And we also exemplify false versions of these traits. Think of false humility. I mean, how many people have, you know it when it happens, but the humble brag. You know, like, if you just did a marathon or something, you put on the marathon shirt, and you just kind of walk around all day, like, puffing your chest out, just waiting for somebody to ask you, hey, did you do that marathon? You're like, oh, this old thing? Yes, I did do a marathon, actually. Funny you should ask. But <laughs> we see so many different false humility signs, different signs of false gentleness, different signs of false patience, that are we actually unified if we're always putting on a false front? How can we be unified as a body of believers when we're fake with one another, when we're just putting in these half measures so that we give the appearance that we're unified without actually being unified and knowing one another. Are these half measures really cutting it? And if they aren't, and if our fixes aren't working, what do we do? Seems kind of like a hopeless situation, but Paul gives us hope in this passage because he points to the Trinity as the example of this unity. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And we see this, we see one spirit, one Lord, one God and Father of all, unified. You see, the Trinity interlocks and complements itself. Father, Spirit, and Son, three persons, but one essence. Different in role and in function, but still holy God. One of the most comforting things about the doctrine of the Trinity to me is that the Bible calls it a mystery, which means we don't have to figure it out. We just trust and believe because it is a massive thing, but we see glimpses. We see just like the Trinity, we're called to a unified stance as believers with different roles towards the same goal. And this goal is to know Christ and to make him known. How are we doing that as a body of believers? How can we push towards this goal together? And one more unique thing about the Trinity that I love in seeing this is that we aren't the same people. And we can celebrate this uniqueness and we can celebrate unique unity in pursuit of our collective goal. Unity doesn't mean we're all the same. The goal isn't that we all look like Luke Thomas. I'm sure that many of you will be thankful that part of my application isn't shave your head and join a triathlon club, but rather exist in one another, exist with one another in your differences. All of your differences, all of our uniqueness, they give life and they bring energy and they give different nuances to a body of believers. God created you in your own way. He created you to be unique. Don't feel like you have to conform to a certain standard 
just to be unified with one another. So I also want to look at Christ specifically as our example in the Trinity. You see, he's, he, he's not the Father. He isn't the Spirit, but he's submitted to the Father for the glory of God. And we see this in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. It'll be up here on the screen, so you don't have to flip to it. But it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we see this that Jesus eagerly and for the joy set before him took on more than just half measures to the point of death on the cross. He humbled himself to secure the church, to secure us for God's glory and for our good. He took on death on a cross so that we would be unified, Jew, Gentile alike, together as one body proclaiming the glory and the mercies of Christ. Jesus persevered patiently, He was gentle, he was humble, he was patient. He didn't exert the rights or needs of himself, which is incredible because he was God incarnate, but he had others in mind his entire time on earth, really throughout all of existence. But we also see that Christ is our victory through the gospel. We see that we have been won into a body of believers where we're free to be in last place. We're free to not have to glorify ourselves. We're free to pursue unity with one another. We know that our life, we know that our value, it's wrapped up in Christ and what he's secured in us. Not our own glory, not our own standing, not our own efforts or accolades, but in the gospel. It's the only thing that matters. And this means that we have no need to be glorious because as Christ is our example, He saw no need to be glorious. Rather, he wanted to be one with the glorious Father and charges us to be one with the glorious Father because ultimately, that's where we're going to find our deepest contentment in the same place as Christ, in the Father. So how do we bring this home? We've gone kind of 30,000 foot view for the last little while, but how do we make this applicable to us today? Well, one of my uh, favorite quotes on the subject of humility and really just unity as a whole was from a guy named Tim Keller. And he says that the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less, putting the needs of others in front of my needs. And I was doing um, a little bit more thinking on this and wondering, like, why, why do we run from unity so much. And for myself personally, it's because I feel that if I'm not looking out for my interests and my my own well-being, who else is going to, right? But bear with me, that doesn't make mathematical sense. Take your community group for an example. You've got 10 people in there, right? So if each one of those 10 people is only focusing on themselves and their well-being, how many people are thinking for each of those persons? One themselves. But what if, as a body of believers, we committed to thinking of the other person more than ourselves, thinking of ourselves less and putting the needs and the values of the others around us 
in front of ours. Well, then you have 10 people thinking for 10 people. So instead of me only concerned by myself, I have nine other people who are thinking for my well-being and thinking for my walk with the Lord. Nine is a lot better than one, I feel like. But if we could commit to that, it just makes mathematical sense. But as we're striving towards unity amongst ourselves, we're looking in two places, inwardly and then outwardly. And inwardly, some good diagnostic questions to consider is just thinking through, man, what part of our lives do we demand and assert ourselves the most in? At what point is enough enough when we're placing our needs above the needs of others? What do our own half measures look like in running from unity with one another? And where does our patience lose steam the fastest? But an interesting thing through this is that we're not called to unity as believers just so that we look really good and that we have no problems with one another and that we're unified as a body. But rather, if we look in John chapter 17, we see that missionally, we are to live in such a way that the world sees that Jesus is real through, the, through our unity as a body of believers. So it'll be on the screen, but it says, this is Jesus speaking, saying, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. So our unity isn't just focused amongst ourselves. Our unity is focused around this city of Knoxville to where they can look at us as a body of believers brought together from different walks of life by the gospel, point to that and say, I don't understand that. Why are you hanging out with that person? Why is that person there? How are you bearing with one another in love? And we get to tell them because of Jesus. Because the gospel allows us these things. Our eagerly maintained unity reveals and depicts a humble and gentle people that are fine with losing our own glory and the eclipsing beauty of another person's, all for the glory of God. This ultimately allows the rest of the world to believe in Christ and the Father who sent him. So there are three main points of application that I want to get through. The first one is that we need to pray to the Holy Spirit, petition him for change in this area. We can't become unified by ourselves through our own efforts. We have to pray that the Lord would change our hearts, sanctify us, make us live in unity with one another. But second, you're free to fail in all the things that we just talked about, but you're also free to live in those things. See, before knowing Christ, we didn't have the option not to walk in a lack of unity, not to walk in impatience and a lack of gentleness. But now, because we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within us, we truly can exemplify those traits. So free to fail, but you're also free to live in those things. But third point is to repent. Where are we losing patience? Where are we running from unity. Run from those things. Turn from those things. Ask Christ to change your heart because the thing is, these aren't just character flaws, right? These are ultimately sins against God and all the people that we're called to walk with in unity. Repent so that others can know Jesus. But one of the wonderful things is that through this, we have so much to celebrate. And the first thing to celebrate is that, again, from the first point, the Holy Spirit does this through us. It's a point of application, but it's also a point of celebration that it's not up to us, 
beg the Holy Spirit, beg Christ to change our lives so that we can walk together. This passage reminds us that the calling to unity and the power for unity both exist outside of ourselves in God who has brought himself to us. And that's such a wonderful thing for me to think about. I'm so excited that ultimately it is the Lord working through us to bind us together. But we can also celebrate that we can maintain our distinctions, but not our divisions. We're unified, but we're not the same. We're a mix of glorified people, free to be obscure and last place in the all-encompassing glory of one another for the glory of God. And really, we too will one day be in a place where there is no strife, only unity. Around one table at the foot of Christ, we will experience the unity of God and each other, untouched by sin and untouched by destruction. There was a missionary who was speaking to a group um, of men who were wanting to be pastors, and he was just asking them casually, like, what's your guys' favorite book of the Bible? And they all said, Revelation. And the guy was like, Revelation? Where did that come from? Why do you, what do you mean, Revelation? And they all said, our favorite book is Revelation because we win. As Christians, we win. And we have that to look forward to and celebrate the day that we will live in perfect unity with one another and perfect unity with Christ as it was meant to from the very beginning. But if you all would stand with me um, here in a few moments, I'm going to pray, and the worship team will come out and lead us through some time. But I uh, wanted to point out, we have some elements of communion in the back of the room, and that's a time for you to respond to the sermon, take your family back there, take your friends back there, your community group back there, and use that as a time to pray, talk to God through these things. Um, but we also want to point out that this element of communion is reserved for believers. If, if you haven't trusted in Christ, if you haven't seen how the gospel story changes your story, then I invite you to take Jesus instead. Bread and juice aren't going to do anything for you, but the power of the Spirit, the power of Christ will. So I urge you for that as well. But let me pray for us, and we'll worship Jesus. Father, God, thank you so much um, for the ability to gather here today. Lord, I pray and beg you that you would change our hearts, change our lives, and change our minds, ultimately, that we would live in unity with one another. Father, would you make sense of this passage to where we really would chase down the Trinity as our example of what it means to be a unified body so that ultimately, Lord, you would be glorified. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the ability to live out this calling that you have given us on earth. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.